You know, we've talked about, and I, I just want to keep this reminder out in front of people, and I also want to lay it out today because we're going to see it in Esther chapter 3, and I want to give you the end of the sermon first, not in slides or anything like that. I just want to tell you what's coming because I want you to see at the end of chapter 3 in Esther, what we see is confusion. What we see is pain and not knowing what's coming ahead, Okay. And so with this book and with like so much you and I get the opportunity to read, you know, the last pages first, even though your life, you're looking at it and there is confusion there. There are things that you don't understand. You need to understand that just like the book of Esther, God is seeing the whole plan play out. And some of you this morning are struggling through things and you would not, you would have no reason as to why you think God should, should lay this out there. And I want you to understand a couple of things. Number one. He is going to show up and be with you in those moments like you've never been able to see before. If you talk to a couple people, and this is you know, one of the praises of the Miller, one of the praises with Tim, that every time I speak to him, this is an area that he dives into immediately is that, man, the Lord is showing up. The Lord is moving, changing, drawing him close, loving on him like he's never seen before. That's one level. The other level is what he's doing for the people around you. Your faith, your strength, your courage, sometimes your weakness is drawing other people into the strength and the prayer and the love and the faithfulness of God. He is using you to show them what that looks like. And finally, there are people that you don't even know. There are people you have never met, you will meet once. And whatever you're going through right now, whatever that situation is, God is going to use that to draw them or to point them to himself. And you know, a million years from now, a million years from now, if you and I are thinking about it, the things that draw people to God will be the things that we praise Him for, whether they were done to us or through us. You and I, a million years from now, will look back and we will thank God for every hard moment. Or, not only what it did for us, not only what it did for our family, but the moments you and I get to stand in the kingdom of God and realize that someone else is there because God used you in their life. You planted, you watered, you harvested, and sometime in your journey of confusion and the unknown, God was using you to do something for a seed that had been planted by someone else in another state, on social media, in a hospital room. You and I don't know what God is doing, but we're going to stand in His kingdom, and you and I are going to be there with people that are there and blessed because they ran into you and you were able to help them navigate. God used you to draw them close. You know, as we end Esther chapter 3 this morning, we're going to be left with confusion. And what I want you to understand is that is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. There's more to come. There's more to come. For such a time as this, blessings and punishments, where we've been. Chapter 1, we talked about the king. The king has made a mess. I talked to you all the other day about the acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Stop. Pay attention to what's next because you're getting ready to make a mess. I added two more. ED, number one, excited. We're going to see these two again today. A time of excitement. It can be joy. It can be fear. Whatever it is, when those emotions get elevated, you and I need to be very, very careful. And finally, the D, what's the D stand for? Disrespected. When you've been disrespected. We need to be very careful about the decisions that we make next. Why? Because we are that close to making a mess. And we're going to see it again today in chapter 3. That's what this whole chapter is about. Excitement and disrespect and what comes next. Listen, friends, pride, just like in chapter 1, pride will fail you every time. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. 
You and I get exalted, we get puffed up, we think we're okay, we think we got this, and then all of a sudden we're in the middle of a mess. If it happened to the king, right, of the known world, who's to say it's not going to happen to you and I? Pride is a dangerous, dangerous thing. What do we get in chapter 2? We see an unexpecting queen. She's missed, she's missed much in life. But she has three things. She has the same three things that you and I have. She has a godly example. If you are meeting here with us or you are able to be with us in any way, shape, or form, via phone, social media, whatever it is, you have access to a godly example. There are men and women here that love the Lord and can help you do the same thing. You have access to this blessing. Sound of my voice, now or later, doesn't matter. You have access to this blessing. God has put godly, wise people in our lives if we will just be humble enough to reach out, to ask, and to seek it. If you and I want what wisdom looks like, there are people sitting around you in here this morning that have it in abundance. They can help you. Young ones, listen to what I'm saying. If you want what wisdom looks like, if you want the blessings that God pours out on people, if you want the safety and security that comes from knowing the Lord and knowing His Word, that is wisdom. You have it in abundance. There are people here that would love to spend time with you and pour into you at a bare minimum, to make sure you didn't hit the same potholes they did. She has a godly example. She has a gift to use. She has a gift to use. We started off with this, her physical beauty. That's what we got. But you and I found something real quick. What is her other gift? Her other gift is wisdom. Her other gift is shrewdness. She knows how to navigate the world. Esther is a young woman of beauty and shrewdness, wisdom. And finally, she has a future to be a blessing in. You can change a lot of things in life if you listen to me very carefully right now. Your future is not to be blessed in. Your future is to be a blessing in. You do one, you get both. If you seek to be blessed constantly, actually that morphs into kind of a selfishness. That's kind of the whole, the whole gist of the prosperity gospel is I'm going to live this life so that I can be taken care of and I can be given stuff. If you and I will remember, your future is not about your blessing. Your future is about you blessing other people. If you do that one, you'll get both. If you do that one, you'll be surrounded by people that love the Lord and love you. If you do that one, you will be surrounded by help. Anytime you have a need, God will show up and provide what you need. Sometimes it will be through your church. Sometimes it will be supernaturally. But if you and I are living here, there's a couple hundred people here this morning. Anything that needed to get done in your life, in your community, someone here knows how to do it, knows how to do it with the tools that they have, knows somebody that knows how to do it. I mean, it's just amazing what you and I have resources to in a church, and God provides and shows up and loves on you through these people, and then sometimes he'll give you things supernaturally. They will just come out of nowhere. His provision will just show up like he is showing off just to love on you and to show you something special. But you and I got to understand, your future is not about being blessed. Your future is about being a blessing. If you, if, you, if you seek the right one, you'll get them both. If you seek the wrong one, you'll be lonely and let down the rest of your life. The end of your pride, the end of your celebration will be your own frustration. Seek to be a blessing. Man, 
That is so good. That is Esther's life. And finally, she has that future, right? That's number three. Esther has found favor with God and man. Humility and shrewdness make her ready for tomorrow. And then the last slide last week looked like this. What do you and I do in order to look like Esther, to take this passage and start to, to, to put it into our life, to apply it to what's going on? Number one, we need to receive godly counsel. We need to seek it out. It's an active process. Number two, you need to not neglect the gifting and the talents and the skills that you have. Don't curse what God has given by letting it wither and die. There are things, there's at least one thing, if not many things, that you can do that other people either struggle with, don't want to do, can't do. That's the, that's the element of, of the body that you are. That's why you're here. To love and to care for and to complete what we're trying to do. Complete what's in your family. Complete what's in this church. That is your calling. Don't let those gifts wither and die. Don't curse what God has given. Love those things. Be honored to use them for His glory and the blessings of others around you. Stay pure and be prepared for your moment. That's what we learned last week. Stay pure and be prepared for your moment. Don't neglect your physical body. Its appearance, its preparation, its presentation. The world cares about all those things. And to a certain extent, you and I need to too. But God says this body is your temple. And the way it feels and the way you and I treat it, the way we feed it, the way we take care of it, the way we rest it, all of those things come out in how our soul, our spirit, our mental, our emotional states, it works in all of those things. So you and I need to honor what God has given us. Did they take care of the temple or not? But there wasn't no litter laying around the temple. What do you think? Stuff there for service and the glory of God. That's you and that's me now. Right? So as we start this six weeks with the guys and we're pushing some of these things, some of these things are there for you and I to be reminded that this temple is what God has given to house himself in while we live in this world and to get us ready for the one to come. We're going to push it. We're going to make it uncomfortable. Right? We're going to see that there's so much more to what you and I have than maybe any of us have ever tapped into. This body is special. The Lord has given it. There's nothing in this world, anything like it. You understand that even the idea that your blood clots is a miracle? Like all of these things had to be there and present the first time a human being was cut or they just would have bled to death on a paper cut. I saw one Taylor had the other day. It looked like she cut herself with a knife. Right? Just bled to death, just been done, been over, right? First, first baby born would have been done. Mom and baby both, right? The idea that even your blood clots shows the attention to detail God put into making this thing you and I have. See your spot as ordained, on purpose, planned, and useful. You say, you don't know anything about my spot. I don't have to know about your spot. I don't, know how, I don't have to know about where you started or, or, or where you're at right now in your life when mistakes that you've made or the evil things that have been done to you. I don't have to know about those things. Why? Because the example of God in Scripture says He uses people out of all of that. Esther is that example. From servant orphan girl to queen. That's what we've seen. David is that example. The youngest in his family wasn't even brought forward to, to even be uh, looked at as king of Israel. He is the last one he has forgotten about. And yet Samuel says, are there no more sons, Jesse? Oh, I got one more. He's out in the field. Right? He's a red-haired little feller. Right? Forgot all about him. Doesn't look kingly at all. Get him. There's the king. Say, man, you don't understand what I've gone through. I do. 
understand that the God of the universe uses ones like Moses, let go by his parents, taken into a foreign land, brought out of the water, raised by Egyptian royalty, soon to be the deliverer of Israel. This morning we talked about Saul of Tarsus, religious Jew, persecuting the church, trying to harm it. Jesus knocks him off his donkey on the road to Damascus, wakes him up a new man, maybe the greatest Christian to ever live. Well, this was a guy that helped kill Christians. It was. It was. 1 Corinthians lifts a whole string of nastiness in one passage, and Paul says, such were some of you. But you are not that anymore. You have been called, you have been saved, you have been cleaned, you have been set aside, sanctified for holy service. You see, no matter what story you're telling yourself and no matter what story the enemy is telling you this morning, Scripture is filled with people that should not have been on mission for God. Their past was too nasty. Their start was too meaningless. And guess what? Every time you and I open the Word, we read their stories. James, the younger brother of Jesus, thought he was crazy. Told him to go on and get himself killed in Jerusalem. Go on. If you're the son of God, go do what you got to do. We'll see what happens. That's the half-brother of Jesus. Who is he in the book of Acts? He is the first pastor at the church of Jerusalem. You see, the Lord has a way of changing things. The enemy wants you and I to believe that only what's been doled out on us or only what we have done count. That is not true. You and I believe in the miraculous. Whatever you're telling yourself this morning, God has a better picture and a better plan. Look at Esther chapter 3 with me. The world is not a safe place. The world is not a safe place. Chapter 3 verse 1 says this, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him to set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Stop right there. When Scripture tells us something... We need to pay attention to what's going on. The details aren't necessarily details that we just skip over. So who is this guy? His name is Haman. And Scripture wants us to know that he is an Agite. What does that mean? He is a descendant of Agag, an evil king of the Amalekites. You see, a new character in verse 1 is entered in. It's the villain, one of them. Haman the Agite. Agite uh, seems to be both a man and a title, king of the Amalekites and a thorn in the Jewish side. We see him a couple times in, in Scripture. We see this word. We see this name. One time is in Numbers 24 where Balaam is, is brought in to curse the nation of Israel, and yet he can't do it. When he opens his mouth, all that comes out are blessings. And so a foreign king brings him in and says, hey, you have the word of God in you. I want you to curse the nation of Israel, and that way when they come into my land, they'll be cursed. And he tries several times. And every time Balaam opens his mouth, guess what happens? Blessings start to come out. One of them sounds like this. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Numbers 24. He opens his mouth and blessings come out. And he tells the foreign king, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to speak the word of God. Tries to give him money. Tries to take him to a new location. Takes him to another part of the kingdom. Okay, now curse them. And blessings just come out. The other one is this, 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is sent in. He is told, nothing's to survive. These people are that evil. 
If you remember in the story of, of uh, while the Egyptians are in Egypt, it's 400 years. And God says, these people have gotten so evil, they offer their children to idols. Right? Some nasty stuff in the Old Testament. Guess what? People today aren't any less cruel. But God says, 400 years, they have built up the wickedness, and now I'm pouring out judgment. And the Jews... The nation of Israel is going to be the sword. They're going to pull out that judgment. God says, I'm not going to destroy all the people at once. Why? Because the land will be overgrown and it won't be useful to you. So one of the stories in 1 Samuel 15, Saul goes to war and he comes back and there's stuff that's lived. God says the animals and everything, it's all to be given to destruction. And Saul disobeys and he comes back like you and I and he has a good excuse for his disobedience. Well, I was going to offer these things as a sacrifice to God. And Samuel says, God already told you what to do. And he says, who is this? Well, there's the king, Agag. And he brings him back alive. I want you to understand something. When you and I don't deal with sin properly, that was the picture of the land that they were going into. The people that were living in the land had sinned against God. They had sinned against each other. They were wicked. They were vile. And that is a picture of what you and I need to do with the parts of our heart and the parts of our life where sin resides. We need to kill it. Show it no quarter. Do away with all of it. Why? Because if we don't, then a couple hundred years later, the Jewish people are still dealing with the rebellion of one king. Friends, a couple decades later, you and I are still dealing with sins that should have been killed when we were teenagers or in our 20s or in our 30s or in our 40s or in our 50s. That habit, that thing, that pride, that something, God says remove all of it, hand it to him, crucify it, kill it, and then run from it. Why? Because it's not bringing you any blessings. It's cursing your life. And ultimately what happens is when you and I let that curse reside, it curses the people around us too. Not all of these things are vicious and vile either. Some of these things are just you and I making agreements about what your life should look like. Some of you are really depressed and disheartened about the life that you have. And every day you utter something like that in your mind, in your heart, you dishonor the God of the universe that created you. That's a hard one, isn't it? That's true. Because God speaks blessings, the enemy speaks curses, and so many times you and I agree with the enemy and we just think it's like it's a victimless crime. I'm just going to agree with what the devil has to say to me. I don't care what God has said. And what you and I do is we sin against the God of the universe because we believe the lie over the truth. And so you wake up every morning with this cloud over you trying to navigate the day, and yet you've sinned against the God of the universe. You've mocked his creation. You've mocked his timing. You've mocked what he's done in your past. You've mocked what he can do in your future. You and I need to repent of those things and run from them. They are harming your whole life. We need to remove that sin, and we need to kill it. Look at verse 2 with me. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow and pay homage. Verses 3 to 5. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see, and if you underline stuff in your Bible, this might be a, a, a piece you need to underline, maybe highlight, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Let's stop right there just for a second. How many times have people that don't know the Lord 
pushed you, prodded you, shoved you, just to see if your word would stand. Do they really mean what they say? They really believe what they say. Is this Jesus really real? Is this Holy Spirit real? Is it making them more like Christ? Listen, some of you kids are doing it to you. Really, nothing? Nothing? No amen, no groan, no nothing, right? Vody Bacham, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. They're doing it to you. I say, what do you mean? They are pushing you to see if it's real. They're pushing you to see if the word stands. Does your word stand? Does it mean anything? Well, I mean, it's good when times are good. How about when it's hard? Right? How about when there's disobedience? Maybe a smidge of defiance. Right? Maybe some anger. Maybe some irritation. They're pushing you to see if it's real. That's what's going on to Mordecai. These, what can you call it in a church setting? These stirs of bad news. Stirs of irritation, right? They're stirring him. That didn't work. Let's go tell Haman. <laughs> Let's go deliver this bad news to the person that will be offended. Some of you have friends with people like that. God help you, there better not be any of those people in this church like that. You love to offend somebody or hurt their feelings, you love to get them stirred up, you better shut your mouth. And if you choose to hang out with people that do that to other people, you better believe they're going to do it to you. This is a bad character quality. Bad. If you are around somebody or you are someone that loves to stir this stuff, you are in big trouble. That is sowing discord. Proverbs 6 says it's worse than murdering the innocent. Read it. It's there. Six things the Lord hates. Seven is an abomination to God. Seven, he or she who sows discord among brothers. That's what's going on in this passage. They didn't get a rise out of Mordecai like they thought. They didn't make him bow to what they thought he should be doing. So they went to the offended party. They broke their neck to get there to tell the story, to make somebody angry, to flare something up, to create strife. Friends, be careful with people like that. Be careful when they're your friends because guess what? They're only your friends as long as it benefits them. And when they spoke to him the day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether or not Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. You see, you and I live in a country right now where we are actually called to figure out how to navigate, how to go through the idea of honoring positions that wicked people fill. That's not easy. You say, I don't need wisdom. I don't need shrewdness. I don't need to dive into the deeper things of Scripture. I don't need to get into the life of Christ and operate like he did. Listen to me. You and I are commanded to honor certain positions among us. Mom and dad, how do you honor parents? that don't really deserve it. That's a hard one, isn't it? How do you honor a boss, right, that you would just as soon choke, right? How do you honor people in government that are vicious and vile, that hate the Lord's word, 
that would rather see the country burn in sin and selfishness than have the audacity to stand up and call people to repent? How do you honor positions? Like, that's what you and I are figuring out. How do we honor the position without honoring the wicked person? Because what happens if you and I mix those things up? If we honor a wicked person, you know what you've done to your children? You've given them an example. Athletes, entertainers, politicians. We honor the person. We honor the person. We honor those that dishonor our Lord. What you and I have done subtly to our kids is we've given them an example. Follow that person. We're going to give them honor. They see how we respond. They see how we react. And they say that is something that we need to go toward. No, it is not. Honor the position. Honor your boss. Be the best worker you can be. Honor your parents. Some of them need to be honored at a distance, but honor your parents. They're not safe, right? Your kids don't have to enter into your mission field when you go and meet up with people that aren't safe people. You and I need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Jesus' words, not mine. To honor the wicked is to make them an example, to follow, or a life to emulate. Verses 3 to 5, Mordecai refuses repeatedly for personal and historical reasons. He refuses repeatedly to honor Haman. Partly because of the history and partly because he's a Jew. And this kind of honor is not something they show. Now here's what gets uh, really wild. For Haman, this is a time of what? I've underlined them both for you. Excitement. Haman has been honored by the king. He's been lifted to second in command. He sits at the king's table. He helps the king make decisions. He drinks with the king. He eats with the king. He has been honored. He is totally excited, and he wants you to be excited about his elevation too. But now he's also been what? Mm. Mm. And if we were getting into chapter 4 and later into the book today, we would see how he was setting his own noose. But I'm not going to deliver that because we're going to end on a cliffhanger today as we end chapter 3. Right? But he is excited. He has been disrespected. And now he is absolutely angry. And he is worldly enough to wait. You know, he could have had Mordecai killed immediately. Why? Who was Mordecai actually dishonoring by not bowing to Haman? The king. He could have had one person offed immediately. Listen, this is how the sin of wrath and the sin of rage mess with you and I. He could have solved his problem in minutes. King, there's somebody that is dishonoring you by dishonoring me. But instead of doing that, he is far more vicious. He wants to what? Kill all the Jews. When you and I get wrapped up in wrath and rage, do you know what happens? We end up making a bigger mess than we had actually hoped to. I mean, we hope to make a mess. That's why we're living there. That's why it's burning so hot. That's why we want to get back at somebody. We want to lash out. But when you and I live there, we end up making a bigger mess than we even thought we were going to. Haman says, I can kill him now. But it says what in Scripture? It displeased him to do that. He wasn't going to do that. I can kill him right now or I can be patient and get them all. Let's do that. I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to execute a plan. It's going to take me some time, and I don't matter. It doesn't matter because the end of it is going to feel so good. I'm going to be so happy and so exalted. By the time this is done, it's worth the wait. One guy, nope, I want them all. 
And so he starts to make a plan. Haman holds his grudges. Verse 6, what does it say again as we read down into verse 11? But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Why does he want to destroy all the Jews? Because he remembers what? Also his history. Who took their land? Jews. He's remembering his history too. He wanted to destroy all the Jews throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. I'm going to get my revenge. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year, the king Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of the kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Verse 9, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents. A talent is somewhere between 60 and 80 pounds of something. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries so that the king, uh, the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and en the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you. The people also do, uh, do to do with them as seem good to you. See, he has big, big plans. Haman holds his grudges. Verse 7, the timing matters. What did you and I just read? He is willing to wait a year. He's willing to wait a year. Every day he goes in and they cast lots. What that was was divining. It was asking the spirits for help. They walk in and basically they roll the dice. And when the dice roll up to what is pointing to, go, or, or whatever, whatever sign you're looking for, when it comes up, you go. He waited a year. Waited a year. Every morning, got up. Maybe this will be the day. Well, let's go roll some dice. Oh, not snake eyes. We'll try again tomorrow. Every day for a year. To pick a time when the plan he thought was going to work. When the gods would be in his favor. When he had found favor with whatever God he worshipped. And that was the day he was going to walk in. And the plan was going to be yes. And it was going to go smoothly. And so far what you and I see is he was correct. Timing matters. Haman's gamble is what? God's trap. Because God doesn't care about the mood of the king today. God cares about the answer and the end of what it is he has promised. Haman comes in, makes the pitch. The wedge is driven, uh, is the same as today's against God's people. They don't live like us. What is the number one thing being pushed against the Christian church that really means it? It's this same wedge. They don't live like us. They don't love what we love. They don't honor what we honor. They don't applaud what we applaud. And for all of those things, the world says we need to do away with them. They cancel them on social media. They ostracize you when you get a chance at school. They make fun of you. They mock you. And for all of human history, they have murdered your ancestors. And we're going to return to a place of that. Actually, it's still going on. Just in America, you and I get the opportunity to bypass it. You know what's happening all over the world this morning, though? 
People that read this word, love this word, and hang on to it, you know what's happening to them. Their governments and their people are saying they don't live like us, they need to be done away with, and they do away with them. The Bible says in Revelation that those people are waiting, that they're crying out, longing for vengeance, and one day God is going to hear their cries and their prayers, and he is going to answer through Jesus Christ, Messiah and King. The rider on the white horse is coming. And right now, our brothers and sisters, they are shedding blood. They are losing money. They are losing their families. They are being ostracized. They're hiding in churches. They're being killed. They're being imprisoned. That's happening right now today. Why? Because the world says the same thing that Haman said then. They don't live like us. They don't love like us. They don't honor you. They don't follow you. Like this could absolutely be going on right now in China. The Chinese government is doing the exact same thing. You manipulate the word of God, you pass it out to people that's, that's wrong, that's changed, that's got President Z in it or Z or whatever. He's in it as Messiah, governments as Messiah. The people are being told the same stuff and they're being led to slaughter or led to hiding. Enemy lies divide leaders and kings from some of their best citizens. You know what uh, ought to happen with all this stuff is you and I ought to be the best citizens. We ought to be the best workers that the people around us have. In order to push against us, they should have to push against so many good things, especially in a world where people are lazy and backbiters and liars. They don't come to work. They don't want to work hard. They don't want to honor God. And then you and I show up. There should be some grind in the heart and the soul of those that despise what we stand for but love the product. How about that? They should despise what you and I stand for, but they should absolutely love the product we bring to the table. Why? Because we show up, and instead of working for them, we're working for the Lord. We're a blessing to those around us and a safe place to those that need what we have to offer. They come from homes that are broken, where everybody is against them. They've never experienced what they experience when they walk into you and I. And God helped them to understand that it is heaven coming through us and touching this world. That's what it should be. They should hate what you stand for, but they should love the fruit that it gives. Haman is a manipulator. Ahasuerus is easily prided up, like I told you last week. He is easily manipulated. Why? Because his pride is going to be fed, and then, boom, the hook is set. Same thing in the book of Daniel, remember? Same thing there. Look at verses 13 to 15 as we finish up this morning. Verse 12 says this, The king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. We are a year later. Right? He waited a whole year, pitched the plan. The plan has taken a month later. The scribes and everybody's coming. And remember, this ain't copy and paste. This ain't cell phone, social media, right? Control C, control V, send it on. This ain't that. This is old world. So he waited a year, got the approval. A month later, the scribes come in. And guess what happens then? They're writing the law. The first month and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written in the... Uh, to the kings, satraps, and the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the, in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with his king's signet ring. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the name, uh, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. To kill, destroy, annihilate all the people. Hey, listen, we're going to sweeten the pot too. You can have their stuff. Can you imagine if that was... Listen, the toilet paper debacle of COVID showed us what people would do for a roll of toilet paper. Can you imagine if the government come out and said, listen, your neighbor's stuff, you can have it. You just need to go murder them. I'm not kidding. There would be a portion of people that would say it is legal. Their stuff is awesome. Let's do this. You think I'm kidding? You think we're above that in America? Toilet paper. Like there are leaves all over the place. Like we could have gotten outside the box there, right? We didn't need to hoard, fight, whatever. How about this one? Turn your neighbors in if they don't have a COVID vaccine. What? Y'all remember that, right? Am I the only one old enough to remember that? Right? Do you think I'm kidding with you when I tell you that if the, if, if the legislature come out tomorrow with something like this, there wouldn't be a significant number of people take them up on that? To kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jewish people. We're going to do it 11 months from now. We're going to do it on one day. Here it comes. Follow through. Take their stuff. Enjoy the plunder. Signed with the king's signet. And in that culture meant what? You could not rescind it. This ain't the next administration walking in and saying, let's just veto that and not uphold it. We're just going to remove that. I'm not going to follow through. This ain't that. The king's edict has been stamped. There is no removal. There is no changing. A new king tomorrow. Don't matter. In the name of the king, that thought means something even to this day. Little Christian, Christian, that's you and I. The implications matter to you and I. You walk about in the name of the king. Say, I am a Christian. You wake up tomorrow, you go to work, you drive that car, you do those things. You walk about in the name of the king. You have been assigned a mission and you are there to represent him. Understand that every day. In this one, in the name of the king is going to have people murdered. In ours, in the name of the king means people live. You bring life everywhere you go. You breathe it. You exude it. Jesus is the source, and you are the conduit to which it comes from. It's going to be an open season. It's been declared on the Jewish people. There's an 11-month window for life and death. The king and Haman sit and rejoice while their subjects' land is paralyzed with confusion. It's a curse of bad leadership. Confusion is a curse from bad leadership. Paralysis is a curse of bad leadership. When God wants to judge a people, he gives them what? Bad leadership. Comes down from the Tower of Babel, what are they doing? They're dishonoring God, so what does God do? Confuses their language. One of the greatest things the enemy uses right now in our time is confusion. The people are confused, they are hurt, and they're waiting to die. Do you understand? This is not a good story. 
the end of chapter 3 is harsh. As they come this morning to play, how do you and I participate in this? How do you apply this? Number one, we need to understand that evil players and evil plans abound. There are people out there right now, some you work with, go to school with, some in your own family that want to see you fail. They're making plans to do that. And if it's been a while since you've been to middle school or high school, you're missing out. Right, young ones? You know that? There are people out there right now, they are making plans, hoping you fail, hoping you mess up. They abound. They're all over. You're going to be called to walk a line of honoring dishonorable people because of the positions they have. It's really hard, and it takes a lot of wisdom to do it. Because what happens when you and I dishonor those in charge, when we dishonor people that should not be honored, they're going to come after you. Right? What if it's your boss? One day, what if it's the government? That's what you and I are trying to figure out. The moment you choose, to, you choose to stand against the wicked in high places, you'll be put in their crosshairs and your family. You see, the wickedness of Haman, we're going to see, is shared by his family. And because the wickedness is shared by his family, so will the punishment. Not even mentioned until it's time to dole out the punishment on Haman and those that he loves. Friends, when you and I are biting off of these sins, when we are biting off of these things that dishonor ourselves and our family and our friends, our church, our community, when we partake in those things, you don't understand. You're not suffering alone. It's not a victimless crime for you to live in some kind of sin. Your family experiences it. Your church experiences it, even if it's in private, even if it's a grieving of the Spirit where there's not as much joy and as much peace as there should be. They share it with you. There are so many reasons for you and I to live according to the Word and the will of God. One of them is the people that you love most are blessed when you and I are living like the Lord would call us to live. It's not just about you. And it will never be about you. All of eternity will not be about you. Do you understand that? Even though we'll be blessed, holy, healthy forevermore, it still won't be about you. It'll be about the community of people there. We are collectively the bride of Christ, and we are worshiping the one that is worthy. It would be wise to start now. And finally, some of you this morning, as we stand and we get ready to sing, if you need something, you come. The end of chapter 3 isn't the end of the book. Some of you today are sitting in the end of chapter 3. You look ahead, it's confusing. You look ahead, it looks hard. You look ahead, it looks nasty. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You're sitting at the end of chapter 3. And I need you to understand it's not the end of the book. This is the valley. This next 11 months are going to be really hard. And guess what? It's going to come to an end. And God is going to show himself mighty. On some of you this morning that are struggling, you're trying to figure out what's going to happen, God is going to show up. He is going to show himself mighty. He's going to give you peace and courage and strength. He's going to make you something amazing. He is molding in you and making you look like Jesus. And it's because of the hardship, not outside of it, that it's going to come. Lean in not to the mess. Lean in to the will of God. Find your prayers there. Okay, Lord, what you have for me today what you have for me tomorrow, I am open to because I know all things work together for good and that love God and are called according to his purpose. You need to come this morning. You need to pray about something. You come. You need to talk to me about something. You have that opportunity. Sing with them this morning as they play.